Hello. So, today, I am going to read the last few pages of Ralph Ellison's uh, preface to the 30th anniversary edition of his great 1952 novel, Invisible Man, which is a fantastic novel. I love it uh, very much. Um, um, It's... uh, I won't go into too much introductory detail, I'll just say that it's first person narrated by the unnamed uh, Invisible Man, a a young black man uh, in America of the period, uh, and his many experiences um, uh, through life from college to becoming involved with communists and black nationalists. uh, and 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 you know much else besides. It's sort of a picaresque, um, great novel of of the American um, experience, the Black American experience in particular, um, but also the universal human experience in many ways. Um, and yeah, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And I think uh, the preface that Ellison wrote. For the 30th anniversary edition is a very interesting look at his creation of the book and his reflections on the democratic ideal and the process of writing and creation and his um, his uh, view of the black American uh, experience and tradition and the American literary tradition as well. So I shall stop yabbering on and uh, simply get on with it. Uh, Here we go. Even so, I was still inclined to close my ears and get on with my interrupted novel, but like many writers atoss in what Conrad had described as the destructive element, I had floundered into a state of hyper-receptivity, a desperate condition in which a fiction writer finds it difficult to ignore even the most nebulous idea-emotion that might arise in the process of creation. For he soon learns that such amorphous projections might well be unexpected gifts from his daydreaming muse that might, when properly perceived, provide exactly the materials needed to keep afloat in the turbulent tides of composition. On the other hand, they might wreck him, drown him in the quicksands of indecision. I was already having enough difficulty trying to avoid writing what might turn out to be nothing more nothing more than another novel of racial protest instead of the dramatic study in comparative humanity which I felt any worthwhile novel should be, and the voice appeared to be leading me precisely in that direction. But then, as I listened to its taunting laughter and speculated as to what kind of individual would speak in such accents, I decided that it would be one who had been forged in the underground of American experience and yet managed to emerge less angry than ironic. That he would be a blues-toned laugher at wounds who included himself in his indictment of the human condition. I liked the idea, and as I tried to visualise the speaker I came to relate him to those ongoing conflicts, tragic and comic, that had claimed my group's energy since the abandonment of the Reconstruction. And after coaxing him into revealing a bit more about himself, I concluded that he was without question a character, and that in the dual meaning of the term. And I saw that he was young, 
powerless, reflecting the difficulties of Negro leaders of the period, and ambitious for a role of leadership, a role at which she was doomed to fail. Having nothing to lose, and by way of providing myself the widest field for success or failure, I associated him, ever so distantly, with the narrator of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, and with that I began to structure the, mo the movement of my plot, while he began to merge with my more specialised concerns with fictional form and with certain problems arising out of the pluralistic literary tradition from which I spring. Among these was the question of why most protagonists of Afro-American fiction, not to mention the black characters in fiction written by whites, were without intellectual depth. Too often they were figures caught up in the most intense forms of social struggle, subject to the most extreme forms of the human predicament, but yet seldom able to articulate the issues which tortured them. Not that many worthy individuals aren't, in fact, inarticulate, but that there were and are enough exceptions in real life to provide the perceptive novelist with models. And even if they did not exist, it would be necessary, both in the interest of fictional expressiveness and as examples of human possibility, to invent them. Henry James had taught us much with his hyper-conscious, super-subtle fry characters, who embodied in their own cultured, upper-class way the American virtues of conscience and consciousness. Such ideal creatures were unlikely to turn up in the world I inhabited, but one never knew, because so much in this society is unnoticed and unrecorded. On the other hand, I felt that one of the ever-present challenges facing the American novelist was that of endowing his inarticulate pardon me, was that of endowing his inarticulate characters, scenes and social processes with eloquence. For it is by such attempts that he fulfills his social responsibility as an American artist. Here, it would seem that the interests of art and democracy converge, the development of conscious, articulate citizens being an established goal of this democratic society, and the creation of unconscious, articulate characters being indispensable to the creation of resonant compositional centres through which an organic consistency can be achieved in the fashioning of fictional forms. By way of imposing meaning upon our disparate American experience, the novelist seeks to create forms in which acts, scenes and characters speak for more than their immediate selves, and in this enterprise the very nature of language is on his side. For by a trick of fate, and our racial problems notwithstanding, the human imagination is integrative, and the same is true of the centrifugal force that inspires, that, pardon me, that inspirits the democratic process. And while fiction is but a form of symbolic action, a mere game of as if, therein lies its true function and its potential for effecting change. For at its most serious, just as is true of politics at its best, it is a thrust toward a human ideal. And it approaches that ideal by a subtle process of negating the world of things as given in favour of a complex of man-made positives. So if the ideal of achieving a true political equality eludes us in reality, as it continues to do, there is still available that fictional vision of an ideal democracy in which the actual combines with the ideal and gives us representations of a state of things in which the highly placed and the lowly, the black and the white, the northerner and the southerner, the native-born and the immigrant, are combined to tell us of transcendent truths and possibilities, such as those discovered 
when Mark Twain set Huck and Jim afloat on the raft. Which which suggested to me that a novel could be fashioned as a raft of hope, perception and entertainment that might help keep us afloat as we try to negotiate the snags and whirlpools that mark our nation's vacillating course toward and away from the democratic ideal. There are, of course, other goals for fiction. Yet I recalled that during the early, more optimistic days of this republic, it was assumed that each individual citizen could become, and should prepare to become, president. For democracy was considered not only a collectivity of individuals, as was defined by W.H. Auden, but a collectivity of politically astute citizens, who, by virtue of our vaunted system of universal education and our freedom of opportunity, would be prepared to govern. As things turned out, it was an unlikely possibility. But not entirely, as is attested by the recent examples of the peanut farmer and the motion picture actor. And even for Afro-Americans, there was the brief hope that had been encouraged by the presence of black congressmen in Washington during the Reconstruction. Nor could I see any reason for allowing our more chastened view of political possibility. Not too long before I began this novel, A. Philip Randolph had to threaten our beloved FDR with a march on Washington before our war industries were open to Negroes. To impose undue restrictions upon my novelist's freedom to manipulate imaginatively those possibilities that existed both in Afro-American personality and in the restricted structure of American society. My task was to transcend those restrictions. And as an example, Mark Twain had demonstrated that the novel could serve as a comic antidote to the ailments of politics, and since in 1945, as well as now, Afro-Americans were usually defeated in their bouts with circumstance. There was no reason why they, like Br'er Rabbit and his more literary cousins, the great heroes of tragedy and comedy, shouldn't be allowed to snatch the victory of conscious perception from the forces that overwhelmed them. Therefore, I would have to create a narrator a narrator who could think as well as act, and I saw a capacity for conscious self-assertion as basic to his blundering quest for freedom. So my task was one of revealing the human universals hidden within the plight of one who was both black and American, and not only as a means of conveying my personal vision of possibility, but as a way of dealing with the sheer rhetorical challenge involved in communicating across our barriers of race and religion, class, colour and region, barriers which consist of the many strategies of division that were designed and still function to prevent what would otherwise have been a more or less natural recognition of the reality of black and white fraternity. And to defeat this national tendency to deny the common humanity shared by my character and those who might happen to read of his experience, I would have to provide him with something of a world view, give him a consciousness in which serious philosophical questions could be raised, provide him with a range of diction that could play upon the richness of our readily shared vernacular speech, and construct a plot that would bring him in contact with a variety of American types as they operated on various levels of society. Most of all, I would have to approach racial stereotypes as a given fact of the social process and proceed while gambling with the reader's capacity for fictional truth to reveal the human complexity which stereotypes are intended to conceal. It would be misleading, however, to leave the impression that all of the process of writing was so solemn. 
for in fact there was a great deal of fun along the way. I knew that I was composing a work of fiction, a work of literary art, and one that would allow me to take advantage of the novel's capacity for telling the truth while actually telling a lie, which is the Afro-American folk term for an improvised story. Having worked in barber shops where that form of oral art flourished, I knew that I could draw upon the rich culture of the folk tale as well as that of the novel, and that being uncertain of my skill, I would have to improvise upon my materials in the manner of a jazz musician putting a musical theme through a wild starburst of metamorphosis. By the time I realised that the words of the prologue contained the germ of the ending as well as that of the beginning, I was free to enjoy the surprises of incident and character as they popped into view. And there were surprises. Five years before the book was completed, Frank Taylor, who had given me my first book contract, showed a section to Cyril Connolly, the editor of the English magazine Horizon, and it was published in an issue devoted to art in America. This marked the initial publication of the first chapter, which appeared in America shortly afterward in the 1948 volume of the now defunct Magazine of the Year, a circumstance which accounts for the 1947 and 1948 copyright dates that have caused confusion for scholars. The actual publication date of the complete volume was 1952. These surprises were both encouraging and intimidating, because after savouring that bit of success, I became afraid that this, that this single section, which contained the Battle Royale scene, might well be the novel's only incident of interest. But I persisted, and finally arrived at the moment when it became meaningful to work with my editor, Albert Erskine. The rest, as the saying goes, is history. My highest hope for the novel was that it would sell enough copies to prevent my publishers from losing on their investment and my editor from having wasted his time. But, as I said in the beginning, this has always been a most willful, most self-generating novel, and the proof of that statement is witnessed by the fact that here, 30 astounding years later, it has me writing about it again. And there we are. Well, yeah, I hope you, if you haven't read the book, I hope that inspired you to give it a go. It's a bloody good book, fantastic book. Um, one of the great American um, novels, uh, indubitably. Uh, perhaps if Saul Bellow hadn't written All Game Arch, this would be the American novel. Um but even by that standard, it comes pretty close. So that is that. Uh, have a lovely week.